Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the BBC Good Food Podcast with me, Tom Kerridge. Hello, my name is Orlando Murren and I'm hosting the BBC Good Food Podcast with Tom Kerridge. And today we have a very special guest in the form of Nisha Katona from Great British Menu and also from the very successful restaurant chain Mowgli Street Food. And uh, for Tom and Nisha, I have a question just to get the ball rolling, which would be your desert island spice, if you could only take one spice. Shall we start with you, Nisha? It would be, Orlando, fenugreek, because fenugreek comes in myriad forms and does myriad jobs. It is one of the most miraculous spices in the Indian kitchen, so it would absolutely be fenugreek. Fantastic. And that was a real surprise. I hadn't, if you'd asked me before what you would have said, I wouldn't have thought of that. So we'll, we'll come back to fenugreek later. And Tom? Well, I, I mean, I think I'd like to take pepper, black pepper, because although it's seen as a season, it's actually a spice. However, I would probably take mace. Uh, Tom, I, Tom, I'm sorry, I said one. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, but I, I was going to say that. But then I thought, do you know what, one that... um. One that I love very much because then it would work really nicely if you were, if you were stuck on a desert island and you could make a custard tart. I would take nutmeg or maybe mace, nutmeg or mace, similar sort of thing. Nutmeg, I think, because it's got that lovely kind of, it's got a roundedness to it. It works really well with savoury, uh, but also sweet. So nutmeg is what I would take. 
Tom, on the subject of maize, I'm always a bit puzzled by maize because it comes in that peculiar shape, those kind of little kind of wing-shaped bits. Then you, you grind it up in a spice grinder, do you? Or That's do you it, use yeah. it at home? No, you grind it up. So it's the outer covering of the nutmeg. Mace is the shell that nutmeg comes in, which is why they've got a similar kind of, um, they have a similar kind of undertone. They they share the same DNA. They're, but they, 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 bo- they both work beautifully. But nutmeg, there's something just a little bit richer and softer about We've talked before about nutmeg, Tom. Is that something, a flavour that you were brought up with? Is it a childhood? It is, it's those custard tarts. It's those things of a kind of a, like remembering those it, it, those custard tarts from a from a, a bakery in town that, that you know. And it's now progressed. You know, custard tarts. You think of the beautiful Portuguese ones now, but it, you know, when I was a kid, it was always about loads and loads of grated nutmeg on the top. And it, you know, you mentioned Great British Menu there. I know myself and Nisha are both very lucky to be um, judges now in that incredible show. But one of the original and best dishes that ever won that is uh, Marcus Waring nutmeg custard tart as a dessert and it's one of those spices and seasonings that is so well adapted into i suppose classic british cookery when you think of spicing you think of you think of north african you think of indian cookery you think of, of, of asian spicing but actually nutmeg is one of those things that it goes really really well with the savory slightly softer styles of cooking a bit more european in that sort of aspect and nisha what about your earliest spice memories Goodness me, one of my earliest spice memories would be mustard seeds. So different areas of India have different sort of head note or beloved spices. And I'm from the Bengal. And in the Bengal, the most beloved spice and the kind of defining spice of their cooking is the mustard seed. So in the mornings in India, what would happen is your you, you know grandmother would be there with a couple of stones and she would be grinding up mustard seeds. And they'd go from those little black anodyne balls that smell and taste a very little into this yellow paste that is English mustard, essentially, um, because that's what we would use to, as a main seasoning for many, many of the dishes, particularly fish. Um, and, and there are many reasons why mustard goes particularly well with fish. You know, we, it, very interestingly, you know, in the Bengal, we'd go to the fish markets at about five in the morning. And remember, there were no fridges in the, you know, in those days in India. So you'd have to always have your fish for lunch. So you'd get home, you'd scale. In India, you didn't have toys. What you'd do is you'd descale and gut fish. And it was <laughs> that's a great <laughs> inauguration into actually where your food comes from. It's really important. So we would do that. And it was great fun. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? But those glistening scales and trying to get all of them off. And then you would cook your 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 fish but mustard what that does it almost cleanses the fish those heady notes makes the fish crazily enough less fishy and so that was my one of my earliest spice memories is the the grinding of the mustard seeds at about 5 a.m and did you you put that on the fish before cooking do you sort of spread it on or sprinkle it or is it kind of pasty by that time or powdery now we're getting to it, Orlando. So whenever you cook fish, you rub fish with salt and turmeric. Those are the only two things you rub fish with before cooking. And what the turmeric does is because it is essentially a root and it tastes of the very sun-kissed earth of India, it takes, again, away the fishiness. and It almost gives fish land legs and it makes it more meaty. It's also an antiseptic. So you rub with turmeric, you add mustard in at the very end of cooking the sauce because mustard, like coriander, denatures at high temperatures. The, te- the flavour disappears and ta- changes. So that is the, and I do call it a seasoning for that reason because it goes in at the end and it's stirred through. So you've got this paste that you put in at the end and you stir through. 
Fantastic. I had no idea of that at all. And how much typically would you would you use if we start off with a, a teaspoon of mustard seeds or or per fish? I'm not sure how we measure it, but just to give me some idea because I've never done that at all. Well, let, let's imagine we were cooking four salmon fillets for a, for a curry. Um, you would start, you'd rub the salmon with turmeric and salt and you'd set it aside. You would then fry mustard seeds in the pan or nigella seeds. So there are two spices that go with fish particularly. One is nigella seed and one is mustard seed. So you fry them in a pan, then you fry your fish, add that in, and then you can add things like, believe it or not, yogurt. And then you stir about a teaspoon, a heaped teaspoon of the mustard paste in towards the end. And you always add to that green chili. There are certain spice combinations, Orlando. And whenever you use nigella seed in the Indian kitchen, you use fresh green chili. That is just a marriage that always persists. Similarly, if you ever use mustard seeds, you always have it hand in hand with dry red chili. It's this is my real passion, and this is why I really sort of hide in my spice anorak. There are certain spice combinations that are sacred. These are just tried and tested pathways that have come down through the centuries. You know, it's not a random dance of atoms. You don't just throw different spices in with different ingredients. There are certain spices that go with certain ingredients, and they just work. What I was quite interested in there, when you were talking about the fish that you were choosing, you were choosing, you said salmon. Now, is there a reason why you pick salmon? Is it because, is that something that, I don't ever imagine salmon being used in any form of Indian cookery, or is it because it works really well because it's got this beautiful fat content? This is why I love your brain, Tom, because you're absolutely right. It does. It's not the fish that any Indian would choose to eat. What we would use in this country, remember, we we have our own fish that are very different. So very often you'd go to the Indian uh, grocers and, and get frozen fish. The best fish, in my view, for curries is mackerel because it's the fishiest, because yeah. it's the meat, because it's a heavenly fish and the skin is delicious. And there's every part of the mackerel that is very Indian. Um, you know, the more articulated the fish, the better for us, frankly, you know, the more bones they have, the harder they work, the more they move, the more the flesh is delicious. Salmon sits there like a fat king. <laughs> it doesn't really, you know, it, the, the flavor is not amazing. The reason I say salmon, because uh, I can't be too precious. What I'm passionate about is getting the British public to cook fish curry, to cook curry. I'm a curry evangelist and salmon is the most accessible. It's the least frightening. You know, my passion would actually be head on, tail on, on the bone, eat it with your fingers and eat the eyeballs. We can't quite go there. That's why I say salmon fillets, because it makes me sound vaguely human. <laughs> 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 but I love the the idea of these combinations being passed down through families and generations. How can you find out about those if you you know if they're not in your family? Because I I've never heard anyone say this to me, Nisha. So you're opening my ears to new ideas. You got to buy Nisha's book, Orlando. That's what you got to do. You got to <laughs> you got to buy Nisha's book and get and then she, where she's handing out generations of great cuisine that she's letting out that family secrets. She's banished. She's not allowed back in the family circle anymore. She's, <laughs> she's, she's published the secrets. You're not far wrong. And to be honest on it, you know, I was, <laughs> I had a different job for 20 years. I was never going to be, uh, you know, a, a chef or a foodie or anything like that. Um, 
but this is my absolute passion is you are 100% right. There are, if I, if, I, if I tell you, there are basically all curries are based on only three spices. Let me tell you more. Two of those never change. So two of them, turmeric and chili, are the foundation of every Indian dish. Now, depending on what ingredient you then cook with, for instance, brassicas, root veg, meat, fish, that third head note, and I call it head note because of perfume, that head note spice changes. So for instance, if you're cooking root vegetables, the general head note would be cumin seeds. If you're cooking fish, it would generally be nigella seed. If you're cooking meat, it would be garam masala. So can you see how absolutely simple it is? And, what, and honestly, I, I'm second generation. I was born in, in a working class town in the north of England, Scalmersdale. And it got to the point in my life when I was about 30 when you know, my first generation parents and aunties and uncles are all dying and with them, they will take those formulas and, and they are so ingrained in them. They are so second nature that when you ask, if I asked my mother for a green bean, in, you know, curry recipe, she wouldn't even cite as, nor would any Indian cite turmeric and chili because they just presume, you know, they're in it, you know? And so it, it was so convoluted that I thought, you know, what? I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write these recipes down because I'd worked out that there was a formula. And I thought, even if I just pass those on to my offspring so that, you know, they're, they're not going to be Hindu, they're not going to wear saris. There's very little Indian that will be left in my children. But the one thing they can do is cook a darn good dal and a cauliflower curry. They should be able to <laughs> replicate. That's all we need. If I'm that precious, I should really be staying in India. But honestly, the one thing we need to hand down, the one thing we can do to share our culture, what remains of our culture is the food. For me, you know, Korma was kind of the Kofi Annan of Skelmersdale. When we came to England in the 1970s, my parents, the, you know, we were, my earliest memories were of being stoned, you know, on, on the streets and firebombs through the windows. The one thing that brought other teenagers and, and other parents to our house was the food. And there's a lot to be said for that. There's a lot to be said for keeping these incredible, life-changing, you know, society-enhancing recipes alive. And that's what I've dedicated my life to. So if you told your kids that their inheritance is those recipes, is that it? If, is that, if, you, if you let them down gently with that, Nisha? <laughs> that's all they're getting, Tom. That's all yeah. they're getting. <laughs> and as a result, they never see me. They quite love it, actually, because I'm honestly, I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of like this spice peddler going around the country sharing this, you know, these spice formulas, but it's true, you know, so that I've got a book called The Spice Tree and within that are these formulas. It's the two, the two spices and what that head note is and how it changes. But it's not even just that, Orlando, when you look, you go into an Indian spice shop and there is this completely confounding array of things in jars, powders, seeds, etc. And the, the general rule is the seed spices belong to the vegan or vegetarian, i.e. the Hindu kitchen, the powder spices belong to the meat kitchen, which was really ruled by by the Islamic um, Indians that go through the nation. Very, very different ways of using spices. So seed spices is when you want to cook vegetarian food. Powdered spices is when you cook your meat spices. And so, so that's the basic rule, you know, and then it's how you treat those spices. So and again, you'd always fry. So seed spices, you have to fry. And you have to fry them to the point where they're almost black because what you're doing is just creating a delicately spiced oil. 
And that oil dresses those vegetables. You don't want to overpower the vegetables with spices at all. This is just a, a sort of a, a gentle enhancement of what is already wonderful. In the vegan kitchen, in the Hindu kitchen, we don't cook with onion and garlic because they are seen as forbidden ingredients, passion-giving ingredients. And fortuitously, they're also very overpowering ingredients. So you don't want to cook beautiful you know, spinach with um, with onion and garlic. Of course you don't. You know, you want to bring out what's best in that vegetable. So not only are these sort of tried and tested formulas, there is real sort of science and sense behind them. It makes sense that, you know, with green beans, all you want to do is bring that wonderful verdant sort of chlorophyll flavor out. And the way to do that is by using, say, cumin seeds. Gosh, there's a lot to learn. There are, there's so much. I, I mean, I've got a question about spices. Now, quite often people will have spices in their cupboard at home that they've bought to make a curry and they've followed, they bought a cookbook and they're going to do the recipe and they've bought spices that perhaps they wouldn't use again in a hurry, like cardamom, like fenugreek, like uh, um, garam masala. And what happens then? Do they go out of date? Because they're already dried spice. Can you, can, can they still be there two years later and still be nice? Yeah, we don't really do sell by or use by dates in India at all. What we do is we kind of t- take the fungus off the top and use the bits. <laughs> I shouldn't be saying this, but it's the truth with this pernicious being shackled to sell by dates. So the thing with spices, honestly, they stay, all they do is lose their potency a little bit over time. But we would always go back and use dry spices that have been, you know, sitting there dormant in the cupboard for, you know, a year. And I'm not being facetious, a year or two. The truth is, in the Indian kitchen, they don't sit there for a year or two. We'd get through a jar of garam masala, a big jar of garam masala in about a week and a half. So there is that, that you know, you, you get through it. But don't be throwing spices away. Just use more of them. So if something's about six months old, use kind of a t- time and a half. You know, use, you know, one and a half teaspoons instead of one teaspoon of turmeric. But, the, you know, those flavors ain't going anywhere, really. This is what's so wonderful about seeds and roots, you know, their essence is their essence. They're not going to lose that. Um, they just get weaker. So it's a question. I think that's one of the questions I'm most frequently asked is do spices go off? And that's where, that's, that's why I'm so evangelical about getting people to just cook curry more often. And you know, Tom and Orlando, even the word curry is we don't have it in India. That word means nothing. If I was to, t- if uh, my language is Bengali, if I was to t- tell you, t- you'd ask me what I was cooking today. The way we speak is we say, today I'm cooking green beans with cumin and mustard paste. So what we do is we cite the vegetable, we cite the seed that we're using, and we cite that enhancing sort of flavor at the end, which was the seasoning of mustard seed. We don't have the word curry. We tell you what ingredients we're going to use. And once you sort of get into that psyche of thinking, right, I'm going to cook like, Chinese cabbage is such a great, and, and, and sweetheart hispy, sweetheart cabbage. I would never just boil that or steam it or char grill it. What I would always do is fry a little bit of mustard seed in a pan and throw that in at the end, a little bit of English mustard, lemon, and a tiny, tiny bit of brown sugar. And and once you stop, that's not a curry. That's just extraordinary hispy. Um, once we get into that way of thinking, there is no geographical division. There's no linguistic division. It's not about making curry. It's just knowing that hispy goes really well with fried mustard seeds and a tiny bit of English mustard at the end. Now, does hispy cabbage, is it something that's 
native in Indian cookery? Is there, is, does it grow in India, or is there a type of brassica that's very, very similar with that kind of sweetness that hispy cabbage has? Is there something that, or is that something that we're, we're, where we're now with crossover, we're using that spicing, that you know, that Indian infused spicing into something that's a very kind of like a British cabbage? Yeah. Do you know, um, as a child, you are taught in England, you go to supermarkets and you 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 stroke the green robes of the Savoy cabbage. It's the king of cabbages. In India, we have, it, can, I, can I tell you this beautiful thing? We, the, the basic brassica in India is the cauliflower. And you know that that's something we love to cook with. And we use the word gobi for that, gobi. The cabbage that is most common is the drumhead cabbage. And the word in India for that is bun gobi, which means the bound cauliflower. We also love to cook with kohlrabi, which is another brassica, and we call that gut gobi, which means the knotted cauliflower. So can you see that the brassicas is where we are at our happiest. The one that's most commonly used is drumhead, which actually is a really underrated vegetable. It's the savoy, when we come to England, it's savoy that we use. These overwintered, chlorophyll-rich, hard-working, robust greens are, make the best curries. You would never want a tikka masala if you had a really well-cooked savoy cabbage. They're not bridesmaids' dishes in India, these greens. They are centrepieces. Think about it. You know, the crucible of Indian food is you are in a village. You have grown your own cabbage. You know, that you can't, you don't have meat very often at all, or if any, ever, because as Hindus, we didn't. That that precious cabbage that you've grown is going to be the centerpiece of your table in its form, and it's going to feed eight of you. So can you see, it's um, it, it, these are not just sort of ancillary ingredients. That's why I get really passionate about brassicas. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of it. And have you seen, I suppose, a growing trend, particularly through your restaurants, where vegetables are beginning to take a lot more in the way of centre stage? I know we talk about vegetarian, vegan becoming much more of a way of life or people doing meat-free Mondays or whatever. But actually, I don't mean in a, a form of eating, I'm now a vegetarian, I'm a, a vegan. Full-on meat eaters are just ordering much more in the way of vegetables, beginning to be a, such an important part and an integral part of eating. Um, completely. So the majority of our menu is actually meat-free because, and again, I go back to those sort of religious divisions within India. These, you know, the, the the sort of marriage you've got the Islamic kitchen, which celebrates because in the Quran there are tables full. I mean, I was always jealous of this tables full of meat and fantastic things to eat. Hinduism is all about denying yourself in a crazy way and that's where this sort of you know what they thought in hinduism is if you ate heavy ingredients it took away from your ability to philosophize um and to make peace and so that's why you've got this so because my father was a hindu priest the majority of the the, the menu in mowgli is is vegan you know indian food is that you know a lambuna and 10 poppadoms and 10 cobras yeah. please you know to yeah. get away from that and realize that so it's really it's a really tough one and and thank god for the hispy cabbage because that's a cool sounding thing isn't it <laughs> yeah. nisha where do you buy your spices or or maybe i should ask where should we buy our spices because you probably buy jumbo jumbo packs because you've used so much but if you don't use it all the time you don't want to buy a great huge amount of it um it's a really good point um and i would always go to an asian grocer's and the reason i go to an asian grocer's things like garam masala can i tell you garam masala is the meat head notes by so if you're going to cook a basic curry uh and you know and, and i'll give you a recipe for that you're going to start with your turmeric chili and your garam masala that's your basic chicken curry for instance now garam masala 
in Asian shops, you get different kinds of them. They'll all say garam masala, but hold them up to the light. And if the powder is quite grey, it's a cheap, bad garam masala because they've used a lot of coriander seed, which is a cheap seed. So they've packed it full of coriander seed and it looks very mothy and very grey. Hold it up and get one that's a bit redder. The ones that are redder have got things like cinnamon, uh, cardamom, you know, these, the nutmeg, javantry, you know, which is mace, which is what we call these redder, more expensive spices in them. So first of all, you can sort of slightly pick your spices a bit better, but also they are cheaper and you get a lot more. And they really do pack a punch because Indians are fair. The way that we shop, it's merciless and it's excruciating. You know, you 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 go and you bargain and you complain. And if the spice isn't good enough, you go back and you, you know, cash is Oh, precious. should we be making an offer when we, when we buy some spices? <laughs> you go in and you say, brother, tell me your best price. That's- <laughs> you spit on your hand, Orlando, and say, brother, best price. <laughs> It's, you are le- you 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 are honestly raised to to haggle. It is such an addictive thing to do. It's awful. We, I don't obviously don't do it in this country, but by goodness, my mother did, and it was excruciating in the in the supermarket aisles. <laughs> <laughs> now, are there any spices, Nisha, that you are wary of, or that you think people are inclined to misuse that we should watch out for? I tell you, I'll tell you. The phrase curry powder has no place in the Indian kitchen. Curry powder means nothing to Indians. Um, you know, even if you, so, so what many people, I think some of the more sort of advanced sh- chefs and who am I to even talk about advancement and chefs, you know, I'm a home cook, but I think the more liberated chefs would simply use it as a rub on barbecue meat. That's about the only place that you would use it. Um, because in that, do you remember I was talking to you about these sort of sacred trails of spices? You know, if you're cooking vegetables, you're not adding in onion and garlic powder, for instance. Curry powder very often has things like that, these instant impact big flavours. You don't need to do that. You need to get a bit cleverer. So curry powder is, is something that we don't understand at all. The equivalent in India would be garam masala. If you want to give your curry a big oomph, you put in a lot more garam masala. Um, so, so that's the one that, that really does jump out at me. I, I tell you, Orlando, the biggest problem, I think, is the way that people treat spices. So they, they often have cumin and they're not afraid to wield it. But it's that business about frying your cumin seeds before you do anything. When you smell cumin seeds, they smell of tomcat. They smell acrid. They're not a pleasant thing. They smell of human sweat, actually. It's when you fry them, they become citrus and woody. And it's more about the way we treat spices rather than the spices that we're reaching for. If you're using powdered cumin or ground cumin, you you, you can't fry that, though. That has to go in at at a different point, doesn't it? It absolutely does. So remember, it's a powdered spice, so therefore it belongs to the meat kitchen. And it it does. And what it does, cumin seeds, powdered cumin is in garam masala. Powdered cumin is the way that you add umph to your curry. Sometimes you make a curry, turmeric, chili, garam masala, remember, that's it. You make a meat curry, you add your tomatoes, you add a bit of sugar, you add a bit of salt, and you're there. Sometimes it's lacking power. If you want more power, you add more cumin powder. 
Sometimes when you're cooking, say, with, with yogurt and you're making more of a, a malai or a korma kind of dish, you want more fragrance and herb, you add more coriander powder. So can you see those two, coriander powder and cumin powder, already sit? I always describe garam masala as an orchestra full of spices. And sometimes, depending on what you're cooking, if you want something with a big punch, you raise the voice of the cumin powder. Sometimes if you want something a bit more feminine, a bit more fragrant, raise the voice of the coriander powder. If you want something more Christmassy, pick up, you know, get the, get the cinnamon to play a bit harder. So just add, that's where you add things like cardamom, cumin, you know, into your, the truth is you only need say six spices to get you everywhere. Having a big jar of cardamom pods in your kitchen is unnecessary. I don't even do it. Just get the right garam masala. You're so poetic, Nisha. You're <laughs> wonderful. I'm, I'm transported by your words. What about spices with sweet things, desserts? Do you? Because you mentioned cardamom. So I, I, I've worked in places before where, where cardamom would go with the bitterness of chocolate and the sugar. So cardamom works quite nicely there. And some bit, and we've seen it now quite often where chili has been used with chocolate. And then obviously I mentioned nutmeg is, is, a, is a custard tart and mace works quite nicely but and we all associate like cinnamon and ginger at christmas but what about those kind of more spicy punchy flavors do you see them working with with more sweeter kind of after dinner after lunch kind of desserts we do gosh there's a lot in that i, I do you know what it'd be amazing if your listeners not asleep by now but honestly this is where i get really excited on because it, to indians it causes a little bit of chagrin this whole conversation about spices in desserts it's fascinating because in india we don't really eat desserts at the end of the meal. What we'd have is a bit of sweetened yogurt or we would have fruit. Those beautiful, glistening, colourful sweets that you see up and down the, you know, the streets in South Hall, we only have at festivals. But, you know, what, what Britain was doing, you know, during medieval times, is it was using spices really authentically. You know, spices were going in with their meats, with their main courses, etc. About the time of Mrs. Beaton, that was when spices were relegated to the dessert cupboard. They were for puddings, etc. And I think it's taking it's taken a lot of time for us to step out of the dessert cupboard. And that's sort of almost why I gave up my job as a lawyer, because it is about getting people just to use them in their normal cooking. Um, so, Tom, to, in answer to your question, there are very few spices that we actually would use in those festival desserts. Cardamom, green is one of them. Cinnamon, to an extent, is another. Nutmeg also. Um, is something that we would use, you know, to, to sweeten rice puddings or whatever. Um, but they aren't, you know, it isn't the sort of be all and end all. Can you see? It's almost like a, it's almost like a an afterthought. And I and I see it because when you know my my family would cook desserts, you know, jalebi or whatever, there'd be saffron in there. But that's it, really. It's cardamom, it's saffron, it's nutmeg, it's cinnamon. That's it. We don't. The way that I come alive talking about spices for main courses. You just, you know, for, for, for desserts in India, it's just, it's a very easy thing. It's how, how much sugar and deep fat frying can we pack into this dessert and which one of those four spices are we going to lob into it? <laughs> yeah, you, you normally, there's normally a lot of sweetness that goes on, isn't there? There's a huge amount of sweetness. Yeah, it's quite dread. There are a couple that are absolutely incredible. So, for instance, we serve gulab jamun because, you know, that's a, a kind of milk dough based dumpling. There are some that are just staples in India. Gulab jamun, for instance, jalebi, laddus, which is made from samalina flour. So they're great for the gluten freeze as well, many of these desserts. But um, it's it's not the big passion. It's certainly not my big passion. 
Nisha, we're running out of time, but I want to return just briefly to fenugreek. Tell me what I should be doing with the, the jar of fenugreek, which I'm going to go and buy, or the bag of it that I'm going to go and buy. Fenugreek, yeah. <laughs> you can go easy. Fenugreek, okay, it comes in It comes in four forms. It comes in the seed form. It comes in the raw leaf fresh form. So let's just go through that very quickly. The, the seed form is where it's at its most potent. Fenugreek is a fascinating spice in that it 90% of the work that it does is on your nose, very little on your tongue, but it is so beguiling and so completely, oh gosh, magical. It, it's To me, it's one of the nuclear weapons of the Indian kitchen. Fenugreek is used to pick up things like squashes and potatoes, some of the most uh, boring, dull, lackluster vegetables in the Indian kitchen. So you fry fenugreek seed and you cook your squashes or potatoes in with that. In the pure leaf form, you put it in with breads. In powdered form, you put it in as marinades with roasts, you know, or barbecued food. Um, and then the dried leaf form is called kasuri methi, and that's the backbone of things like mother uh, butter chicken, for instance. And you just fry that in at the beginning with your your spices for instance and suddenly you have got these a thousand of a thousand layers of scent and flavor that is utterly mesmerizing and utterly addictive how fantastic thank you so much you've inspired me and i will be trying it i will i will name my price as well when i'm buying it now i think you're going to be making for us um a chicken kofta is that right i am just Tell us about the spices in that. We don't need the the full recipe just at the moment, but if you just whet our appetite for the spices that you've included in that. Gosh, absolutely. So why this is interesting is because in it are fried mustard seeds and curry leaves. Now, do you remember I was telling you that those are not things that we have, you know, seed spices are not what we use in the meat kitchen. Because this is a South Indian dish, all South Indian food is predicated on two spices, mustard seed and curry leaf. And so I thought this is a nice blend to sort of show you how the South Indian flavours are brought into a lovely, basically a nice korma kind of dish. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, I could talk to you forever. I really could. And I bet Tom could as well. But oh, I'd like... <laughs> so many questions. There's so much, isn't there? I love it. When, when you meet somebody who's so, so ingrained and the knowledge is fantastic, you just want to pick people's brains more and more and more about, particularly the spices. It's such an interesting subject because it, it covers so many different aspects. There's so much to learn about it. And I feel such a total beginner. So thank you so much, Nisha. It's been wonderful talking to you and um, good luck with all your endeavours. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the BBC Good Food podcast with me, Tom Kerridge. For more brilliant cooking advice, don't miss the quick bonus recipe episode. Let's cook together. See you next time.